0: My name is Asby Brown. Um, I am uh, the director of the Kanazawa Institute of Technologies Future Design Institute. I live in Japan for the last thirty years, uh, and I have done a lot of research on traditional sustainable practices in Japan, in addition to traditional uh, carpentry, architecture, uh, use of space, and uh, other aspects of that. So,
1: can you tell us tell us about the Edo period? or Edo period, however you say it. Uh, When was it, and what is it for you that is so fascinating about it?
0: The Edo period began in the early 17th century, the first decade of the 17th century, and lasted until the country opened to the West in the 1860s. So it was a period of a little over 250 years. Uh, It was remarkable uh, in many uh, respects, culturally, technically, uh, economically, as well, uh, because uh, it was preceded by uh, a period of, of civil war, uh, centuries of civil war, and also of uh, economic and military expansion overseas. Uh, and the country basically had exhausted itself; had exhausted its resources. It had deforested most of the country. Uh, it had damaged its capability uh, for agricultural production. Uh, the population had increased, and the city, was, rather, the country was really on the verge of uh, environmental collapse, uh, mainly caused by the deforestation. But over the course of uh, the first few generations of that period, through very wise policy making and uh, the ability to uh, use people's traditional knowledge, their understanding of their local environments to apply these new policies. This was reversed. The the environmental degradation was largely reversed. Uh, Regenerative forestry practices were introduced uh, and means were found to increase agricultural production. Uh, to support uh, a growing population, which was then kept stable. And uh, the rest of the period had a steadily increasing quality of life by all of our current metrics in terms of, uh, you know, lifespan, health issues, education, uh, housing, etc. Uh, and it was, you know, a period where the country was isolated. Uh, the, the The regime, the, the shoguns, uh, had a, a strict policy of of isolation, of not having much economic or uh, you know political interchange with the outside world at all, uh, it was a conscious uh, turning inward and a conscious uh, degrowth uh, period in terms of the economy, and had very very many positive benefits for for the society, and it was um, you know considered to be the the period where most of what we consider traditional Japan, you know, the great arts, the great woodblock prints uh, a lot of the great architecture, it was considered to be the period when that was born and when that became very, very common uh, so at the root of this was uh, a great store of traditional environmental practices uh, which uh, were very, very well, very, very well utilized uh, at this time and this was something that I spent uh, quite a long time learning about and trying to to communicate in my book uh, just enough
1: and you argue that 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 period gives insight into what it's like to live in a sustainable society
0: in in what way yeah, this is really one of the big problems that I, uh, you know, saw is that we don't have many models for uh, what a successfully run sustainable society might look like and how it might work. And uh, and this, the Edo period of Japan was one. And it certainly is not the only. I'm sure uh, in other Asian countries, there are very, very many similar practices. But because of its peculiar um, Lack of resources, for instance, the, the the specifics of the situation of Japan, uh, an island nation, uh, not a lot of arable land for agriculture. Uh, there were quite a lot of pressures uh, that that they uh, went through, that have great parallels with our own period. So uh, you know. Sh- Diminishing energy sources. In their case, it was pr- primarily wood uh, for burning and charcoal. Uh, you know, a growing population, uh, difficulty uh, having enough agricultural land. You know, the pressure between how much land do you devote for agriculture and how much can you allow for cities. Uh, you know, lots of the issues that we're facing now uh, were things that they faced um they did not have uh, climate change global warming uh fortunately they had very very abundant uh and good fresh water uh which you know we are actually now having a, a, a you know facing a very great difficulty with globally uh in, in coming decades here so there are some places where the parallels don't fit but otherwise it was a very good match and when i set about to write the book i uh Thought one of the best ways to do it would be as a travelogue, as if we were visiting people uh, in rural villages, for instance, in a city. Visit, you know, a, a normal carpenter or workman in the city. or Visit a samurai in the city, and sort of see how they worked and how that, how they lived, and how that reflected uh, the interconnected systems that they had developed uh, for maximizing the use of their environmental resources without uh, degrading them. You mentioned
1: that um, the, the Edo period uh, kind of came about as a, as a response to the, to the near collapse of society due to the degradation and environmental crisis. How did they turn that around? And perhaps kind of most relevant to our current predicament in terms of climate change, how did they mobilize people to do that?
0: It's really interesting. Um, You know, we can divide it into sort of the technical steps that were taken, uh, the social steps that were taken, the political steps that were taken. They're all connected, however. Um, The first thing was to reverse deforestation. And uh, this was done by some very strict forest protection laws. Uh, Literally, there were laws on the books that, uh, you know, stipulated the death penalty for anyone entering a protected forest with an axe or a cutting tool. Uh, We don't really know how often this penalty was enacted, but uh, the fact is that was, you know, how uh, carefully they wanted to protect these forests. Um, The populace was involved in monitoring their environment had always been actually uh, through a a system something called the satoyama which is uh, you know sort of a set of practices of uh, utilizing and monitoring the surrounding environment japan is very very mountainous uh... most villages will be in the valleys and they were uh, using the surrounding forests in the mountains for their fuel for uh, you know supplementing their diet with you know uh, mountain vegetables and mushrooms and and fruits and things like that uh... and they were constantly monitoring and uh... taking care of this environment uh, And, for instance in the case of fuel uh, this was sort of an ethical issue uh, that was had always been part of the society, This strong ethics of, of not wasting things and of being careful to leave enough for the future. Uh, in the case of fuel, people were not allowed to cut down trees to burn for fuel. They were only allowed to use what had fallen naturally, the fallen branches, etc. Uh, and if a uh, community was living in the same uh, place for centuries, for generations, they knew what the normal carrying capacity of that, uh, environment was in terms of things like fuel. So they would limit their fuel consumption to their known supply. And this preserved force from being unnecessarily cut. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, you know, basically this was not necessarily such a legal, uh, you know, restriction as it was uh, sort of an ethical and and social one. So these kinds of uh, you know tie ups between uh, the overall necessities that were recognized and somehow uh, documented and codified by the government and the traditional ethical, moral, uh, you know, and knowledge based practices of the communities themselves were very very well uh, unified uh, and and served. On the on the whole, to uh, preserve environmental resources. Reading <clears throat>
1: reading just enough with a with a background in in permaculture and having been a permaculture teacher for a long time, um, I look at a lot of what what you have in there and think it's design. Like there is, yes. it's it the the everyday life was underpinned by an incredible amount of uh, sensible common sense uh design it was a it was a design project reading quite yes. a lot you know so that that kind of that everyday common sense design that underpinned uh so much of what you document in the book did did people learn that consciously was it did, was it just did they absorb it by osmosis where did that where did that how, how was that culture infused with with good design
0: It's a really interesting question uh, because design ultimately means making decisions uh, about uh, how to uh, make, build, shape, use, transform things. And uh, I would like to argue that for the most part, these were very, very consciously and continuously evaluated decisions – um, you know, how do we bring the water to our fields without disrupting, uh, the sort of natural, uh, ecological functioning of, of the places we're bringing this through? Um, let's use gravity, you know, let's let gravity do it. Let's use the natural watershed as much as possible. Okay. We get to a certain point. We need to, you know, dig and make, you know, channels for the irrigation water. How do we do that in the best way? Um, they're conscious decisions. And yet, there are also techniques that are tested over time and handed down uh, you know, through generations. it It helped that Japan was a very literate society at that point, a higher literacy rate uh, than any European country. Uh, certainly higher than North America at the time, uh, even though it was socially stratified. It was a, it was a caste-based society, uh, and some of the, the lower ranks may not have had a high literacy rate. There were lots of things that were analyzed and written and put into books, and the books were fabulously well illustrated, so even people who couldn't read could look at the illustrations and kind of like a comic and say, oh, this is how we, you know, dig an irrigation dish or this is how we, you know, build a trellis for, you know, these uh, fruit trees. Uh, It was a a wonderful combination of, uh, you know, uh, educated analysis and uh, handing down things through the oral tradition. So uh, design was everything. And uh it was reflected, I think, in both the overall large scale infrastructural, uh urban planning, town planning, architecture planning aspects, as well as the design of small things used in everyday life, you know, their cups, bowls, boxes, uh furnishings, etc.
1: Um was it a more equal society than today? It 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 really looks like it's very caste-based and kind of stratified. Was there much potential for social mobility? How does it kind of compare to today, do you think?
0: this is probably the one area where we would find it the most wanting it was clearly uh, a caste based society um, uh, several classes of people the military class the samurai were at the top they were maybe ten percent of the population uh... but they dominated uh, most of the wealth and property as in any feudal society Um uh, interestingly the second uh, ranking class were the farmers? Uh, farmers were considered to be uh, more of an elite and important uh, part of the society than merchants were. Uh, merchants were on the lowest rung of society, but economically they ended up, uh, you know, making a lot of money and becoming very powerful. Instead of that, so the social structure valorized uh, the role of. Of peasants, of farmers, uh, of the people who actually provide the food, and uh, you know who who formed the bulk of society. There was very little mobility. Uh, it was purely hereditary, uh, and as in many societies like this, this ultimately became one of the reasons why it was unsustainable, uh, and and led to this uh, catastrophic and traumatic. Uh, collapse in the 19th century. Uh, but yes, we would say definitely it was not an egalitarian society and yet uh, the fact that farmers were considered to be ethically, morally, uh, socially superior to businessmen is is really an inversion of sort of our current uh, uh, value system.
1: Um, Margaret Thatcher um had a, a press secretary called uh, Bernard Ingham, Sir Bernard Ingham, who once famously said, uh, I have one word for environmentalists who would take us back to the 18th century, dentistry. <laughs> and uh, I, wonder, I wonder whether you've been accused of over-romanticizing uh, a time that actually uh, that we've progressed from and... Uh, you know, is kind of best consigned to history? Uh,
0: Of course, as uh, anyone who is, you know, kind of promoting these ideas probably has. And yet I try to be careful to point out that I am not advocating returning to these specific practices, to these specific ways of farming or of building uh, or of doing anything, but for understanding how they perceived uh, their environment, how they addressed problems, uh, and I think um, I, I use the the you know expression um, a multi form solution uh, because in any situation uh, during that period it seems if they were thinking about how to address something like let's say. Uh, again, uh, the, the water problem. Uh, they would look at the connections, at how the issue of water is integrated with others. And an ex- one example would be um, if they want to provide hot water, for instance, for bathing, uh, then if they could do this in a way that did not uh, damage the water supply itself uh, and that also made optimum use of the fuel available, then they were effectively addressing two different, what we would perceive as two different spheres of, of, of interest of you know, the environment with one solution. They did this constantly. Uh, another prime example uh, involves the use, the use of human waste for agriculture. Uh, and again, we can find lots of reasons to oppose this these days in, in, in hygienic terms, uh, which in fact is probably not necessarily the case. Um, whereas in the West, in European cities and certainly in North American cities, uh, human waste was eventually collected in these horrible cesspools, uh, which, as we know, led to cholera and other diseases. Uh, you know, this – in. in in uh, the 19th century, when we developed indoor plumbing and flush toilets, it helped with the hygiene, but then this stuff is being dumped into our rivers where it's polluting them. Uh, it was really you know, not a very good solution. The Japanese solution during the Edo period was uh, that farmers would use uh, human waste uh for fertilizer for their agricultural fields. Now, before this, they were using only uh, what's called green fertilizer, organic matter, leaves, et cetera, uh, nitrogen-rich things that they would put on the fields for fertilizer. But uh, And there were also, also other fertilizers available, like uh, the remains of sardines that had been pressed for oil or of rapeseed that had been pressed for oil. These things were good fertilizers. But using human waste, increased agricultural uh, you know, productivity uh, manifold. Uh, Having farmers go into the cities and empty out uh, the latrines increased the the hygiene level of the cities themselves. There were no reported outbreaks of cholera in Japan until uh, the modern period, in fact. Uh, This also became a market where uh, if you were a landowner in the city and you had uh, lots of rental properties and those renters used a set of latrines on your property, um, initially you would have to pay someone to clean it out, but as time progressed, they were paying you to cart the stuff off. It was so valuable. Uh, and this is you know, sort of providing several benefits. One specific technique provides benefits in terms of agriculture, in terms of health, uh, in terms of economy uh, and and also others, so these are the kinds of solutions that Japan of the Edo period uh, found everywhere. Uh, you know how to reuse things, how to recycle things. You know how to uh, transform what they have into something they need, uh, and they always looked at it in the big picture of how these things could provide many benefits as, as at once. It's the opposite of our specialized viewpoint, I think, uh, where one person knows how to do one thing and that's it.
1: I loved the I loved the bit about how people uh, were paid for their for their sewage it's so beautifully sort of counterintuitive to how we do things today and yeah, it really think, is well, why not you know
0: it it is and you know i mean we all i mean sure you've looked at uh you know composting toilets so called bio toilets and this is these have been developed for decades uh and, uh, you know, we look at our situation where because we do pollute our freshwater system with our waste, then we need to purify the water. And we need to use the energy and, you know, have infrastructure for this and use uh, chemical issues, etc. Uh, it's crazy. And during the Edo period, the main river of Edo, which was the town that eventually was renamed Tokyo, is called the Sumida River. And they say that the water was clean enough, if not to drink as it was to to make tea from you could be in a boat it's like as if you were in the thames in the 18th 19th century and dipped a teapot in that muck and made tea from it um they were it was clean enough to do that so this is you know kind of a remarkable thing um in terms of yeah this this idea of being paid for your uh your compost so to speak uh it's like you had a composting toilet in your house and once a month someone came to clean it out and gave you you know uh five dollars or ten dollars for it it's kind of crazy to think about
1: Mm. so how did you set about researching the book
0: i was really fortunate because uh there are quite a few excellent researchers uh, in Japan who have done a lot of the groundwork. Researchers overseas as well. So, of course, a lot of it was academic research. Uh, and again, the the specialization, you know, was was interesting because you I found people who knew everything there is to know about. Uh, forestry and timber transport, for instance, but who didn't necessarily know about uh, other issues, agriculture, water, you know, architecture. I found people who knew everything there is to know about public baths, but who didn't necessarily think about, you know, uh, the use of metal or the use of charcoal or whatever. So um, none of them were linking up their knowledge to other, other specialists. So I approached it specifically looking at the connections. Uh, and I've been in Japan for quite a long time, and particularly as an architecture specialist, as a traditional architecture specialist, I already was very familiar with how buildings were built, how uh, you know the materials were used, uh, and how uh, cities were built. So from one standpoint, uh, it involved uh, you know following the traces. I, I knew how uh, timbers were shaped and used in a building, but I said, well, where did they get the timber from? And how did that whole system work? And then looked on the downstream side. Well, then what did they do when the building was being demolished? Where did all that, you know, wood and tile and, and you know, other materials go? Uh, and it was really interesting simply expanding this network of, you know, the, the, the uh, I guess you call the stream of materials uh, and of uh, energy through the system in order to, to sort of illustrate the overall connections.
1: How, how has the book been received in Japan?
0: It's very interesting uh, because the Japanese edition was published uh, just a couple of weeks before the disaster of March 2011 and it was very well received. I was asked to write articles in some very high profile Japanese magazines about these ideas. There was an incredible uh, new uh, receptivity towards this kind of thinking, a, a, a kind of very common perception that um, the way that Jap- Japanese society had been doing things, uh, certainly since the modern period that there was something fundamentally wrong, that they, you know, we read stories of uh, people in the Tohoku area that was affected by the tsunami that there had been stone markers uh, set there centuries ago saying the tsunami came this far, you know, don't build below this point. and they were warned. Their forebears warned them not to build in these low lying, vulnerable areas, but that was ignored. So there's a sense that there was just an incredible amount of knowledge and information and caution that was uh, bequeathed to the, the, the current generations by their ancestors that had been ignored. And why have we ignored all of this stuff? Is it, you know sort of a, a crisis of thinking? And I really felt that society was ready uh, to sort of turn the corner. On things like energy policy, on things like environmental policy. Uh, and I think, you know, it sparked quite a lot of discussions and quite a lot of positive networking. But I, I hate to say it, we're three and a half years past uh, this disaster. And I feel that I was naive in expecting changes to happen as quickly as I did. So I'm very happy that. The ideas that I talk about in the book have gained much more currency. There's much more of a grassroots uh, understanding. Lots of people in their uh, regions, the, the, the rural regions uh, of Japan, uh, are, are trying to integrate a lot of this kind of thinking into their, uh, their own lifestyles. Uh, but overall, the direction, the, the economic and industrial policy and energy policy direction has not changed. Uh, and I'm not sure what it will take to change it.
1: And I mean, at the moment, the the economy is has sort of gone into downturn again in Japan after a period of sort of quantitative easing that just seems to have made the rich richer and not really helped anybody else very much. Do you see uh, any a kind of uh, any kind of conscious degrowth movement emerging in Japan that is
0: inspired by these kind of ideas? Well. There are people, colleagues of mine, who talk about this a lot. Interestingly, um, another researcher uh, named Yuko Tanaka, who is uh, really approached the Edo period, uh, you know, learning about the Edo period through uh, literature and writing. And and she and uh, another colleague named Kebo Oiwa have discussed uh, the implications of the the conscious economic degrowth policy and the successes of that during the Edo period uh, in terms of what we can learn from it now and how this might have important lessons for us so there are people, uh, very good scholars, writers, thinkers, activists who are talking about this um, it is, it, it's a very alien idea to people however, a uh, very foreign idea um, Our assumptions are that constant growth is necessary. Uh, The idea that we can have, you know, an economic cycle uh, that is very uh, vital and uh, positive uh, that does not require. Uh, the kinds of uh, interpretation of 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 growth of of you know constantly utilizing more resources, new resources, new markets. This is just something that is so alien to people's way of thinking that they it, it's hard to uh, to really talk to people about it. Uh, but there are lots of grassroots movements. There are even alternate currency movements in Japan. Uh, there are lots of Places and again, these tend to be uh, rural areas where people have gone back to small towns uh, to be farmers, to be you know, as um, uh, more self-sufficient and uh, to to live you know closer with the, the natural environment. Um, there is a, a network, but really, it is a, a small a small minority uh, within the society, mm-hmm. as these things often are.
1: One of the questions I often get asked about. Uh, about transition and, and the idea of uh, uh, intentional localization is around um, well surely uh, you know we need to we need everybody to be trading with each other uh, and I would say well yeah up to a degree but actually you know when you have when different communities are more able to meet their own needs, and have an economy where they're more self-reliant, not self-sufficient, but there is that cultural sense that people are able to turn their hands to address issues that arise, rather than each community, each settlement, being completely unskilled, dependent on imports for absolutely everything, then then the quality of the relationship between those settlements is very different. When two people meet each other and they're both very skilled adaptable resilient can turn their hands to anything it's a very different relationship than when two people meet each other who don't have those skills i wonder what your sense is from from your study of the edo period in terms of how that was what were the quality of the relationships between neighboring neighboring settlements and how they maybe differ from from today
0: they were overall very very self-sufficient um to begin with and um of course there's variations in the sort of the natural uh you know topography and and uh, what what uh resources their particular local environment may may have provided um there were not many things that villagers needed to buy from the outside and one interestingly was salt another was uh metal ore for for you know making iron implements etc uh, other than that there was the conscious desire to make do with what was you know naturally provided and to sort of set limits to the consumption and use of these resources. And uh, among the things that this led to was an incredible re- recycling and reuse and a redesign a, a design of things for recycling reuse. Um, politically, you know it's it's kind of difficult to talk about um, you know, the, the sort of political and economic situation, because on the one hand, it was a very advanced system in terms of information. And this, you know, is largely based on the, the literacy that I mentioned. Uh, you had, you know, peasants who were actually very, very well educated, uh, uh, many of them, and certainly the leadership uh, of the villages were, were well educated. Uh, and they had a uh, you know economic systems uh, with their neighboring you know villages that um, were actually very very uh, lively uh, trading of goods trading of farm goods etc with each other not that it was necessary so much Uh, and then there was a a large part of their the farm economy was based on providing things for the cities so the urban rural interchange was really the engine for a lot of the economic uh, activity and uh, particular regions which for instance if, if your area uh, was very well suited for growing peaches then you would have sort of a concerted effort uh, by local leadership to uh, to maximize that and to pr- find the markets and the, the shipping etc to provide these to the the cities. so um, the, the cities were very, very large. Uh, the city of Edo, again, this was what Tokyo was called before the modern period, um, had 1.3, 1.4 million people. And this made it one of the largest cities in the world, if not the largest city in the world at the time, until probably overtaken by, by London at some point. Uh, very, very large population centers. Uh, and they, they needed everything. And, uh, and particularly food. So this was... Uh, Kind of, you know, an interesting relationship. Um, the the peasants knew they were needed. They were heavily taxed by the you know feudal lords, uh, and yet the feudal lords did everything they could do to keep them content, happy. And to provide them with an improving quality of life. And again, this is one of the remarkable aspects of this, despite this, cons- this conscious uh, and constant uh, you know, uh, effort not to overconsume, um, quality of life did, imp- did improve steadily. And this is kind of uh, seems to be, you know, uh, an oxymoron to us. How is it possible to have a better quality of life without consuming more? It was a question of consuming more intelligently based on a good understanding of the environment, of what was available, of what was changing and of how to utilize it as as uh, optimally as possible. Are you
1: able to in any way infer or suggest that... uh people were happier than than they are in Japan today?
0: You know, this is one of those great questions. Um, And again, this is where we might, you know, run the risk of over-romanticizing. If there was a happiness index, then I think that Japanese peasants would probably have ranked fairly high. There were occasional famines. Uh, We mentioned there was no real mobility. Um, the, uh, feudal government allowed a certain amount of, you know, expression of discontent of, uh, uh you know, uh, petitioning for reform and for redress, but they drew a, a, a firm line, you know, uh, when it came toward, you know, to armed uprising, et cetera. And they, they were very, very harsh on this. So it's as if, you know, you'd say, well, as long as they, you know, didn't overstep, you know, their, their boundaries, uh, they were allowed to do pretty much whatever they wanted. And this seems very, very clear, uh, in terms of, uh, free time in terms of, you know, uh, things that we, you know, tend to evaluate for our own happiness. They had that in abundance. Um, the merchant class in the cities, again, if, uh, their life was about business and business opportunity, and it was a very, uh, Business-oriented society as well. Uh, the cities were fantastically dynamic. Uh, lots of entertainment, uh, lots of food. Again, you know, pretty much everyone had uh, what they needed in terms of food and and a place to live. Uh, and some people were able to have a lot of luxuries. And there was a lot of social mobility, economic mobility, uh, for the merchant classes and the the craftsmen classes who lived primarily in the cities. The people who suffered the most, ironically, were the samurai, and the samurai were technically at the top of the pyramid, but the system was rigid. It was, uh, their incomes were set on stipends, uh, based on the situation generations previously, centuries previously. They were not able to get more, uh, income except by somehow advancing in rank, and there were limited opportunities for that. So, ultimately, you had, uh, uh in effect, a horrific inflation that affected the samurai classes, uh, who were unable to make ends meet with their uh, government stipends and they were essentially you know they were trained as warriors but with centuries of no war they ultimately became salaried workers uh... they would go to an office somewhere a government office and do some paperwork uh... you know a few times a week uh... but they really could not better their lot and they were prohibited from doing business or from from selling things one of the fascinating results of this was that gradually they converted their ornamental gardens. and every samurai really needed to have a garden uh, for formal reasons, uh, you know to, when they were receiving their their um, you know up people who were ranking above them, they needed to be able to receive them in an appropriate way. They gradually converted their ornamental gardens to uh, vegetable plots to farm plots. And we saw at, during this period a tremendous uh, amount of urban farming primarily for samurai to feed themselves. And this led to an exchange economy. Uh, And again, because they were prohibited from participating in the cash economy, um, if they wanted to, you know, you grew a lot of, you know, uh, apples or or eggplants or whatever, um, you're welcome to share those or trade them with your family, with your neighbors, with others. And this was a very lively uh, sharing economy that was happening at the same time. So you had the cash economy, and within this was a sharing economy. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it continued for, for well over a century uh, and eventually, again, fell apart when the, the, the nation opened itself to the global economy.
1: You 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 mentioned that your your background is in architecture and and in building. I was really taken. There's a quote from the book where you say, "We've become accustomed to living in spaces that are bound by characterless materials, with neither sensual richness nor history." Given the <laughs> the the the, um, the kind of the quality of most modern buildings, the industrial uh, industrialized buildings, what do you think we've lost? by moving away from from the kind of uh, construction rooted in local materials, local culture, that you sit out so beautifully in the book. And can we get it back?
0: This is an area, you know, that I am conflicted about uh, for a lot of reasons uh, because I am interested in wooden building. I do love wooden building. Um, I think it, it, you know, in many places in the world, it... it has an unparalleled uh, uh, quality, uh, essential quality, physical quality, uh, environmental uh, qualities. And yet sometimes I feel that because of our uh, deforestation, our, our, our poor management of our forests, maybe we should decrease the use of wood in construction. And, and so I'm really torn about this. Um, what I do see that uh, the Japanese building of this period uh, had and uh, gave to its society was a sense of time, primarily. A sense of connection, a sense of aging, a sense of, of continuity. Uh, the buildings lent themselves, as particularly the way that they were uh, designed in Japan, lent themselves to to being modified, to growth, to adapting, uh, being adapted as needs changed without changing the fundamental quality or character of the buildings or the towns. Uh, And this is a a, a property that, uh, you know, towns or or buildings and cities have, have always had. And we could even say they still do, even if they're built with industrial materials to some degree, but it's not really recognized as a fundamental need for buildings. Uh, We're considering, you know, basically we assume that buildings will be used for a certain number of decades. Uh, In Japan, currently, it's assumed that a building will be used for 20 or 30 years and then will be demolished, scrapped, and something else built. So, we have lost buildings that speak to uh, our society, to ourselves, uh, about who we are, where we came from, what we have valued, what we care about. I'm lucky uh, I grew up in New Orleans, in the United States, which is one of the older cities uh, in in uh, North America, uh, where this was valued. Uh, no matter what neighborhood you would walk through, you could see how people lived 100 years ago, and and how we still appreciate the some of the same things they appreciated, and how uh, you know if we value that and take care of it, it really beautifies and enhances our lives, and and enhances our identity, uh, uh, and. I realize in the United States there's not a lot of places where you you can say that. Uh, in Japan, I think people understood that, and and still tend that there's some kernel of understanding about it. But they feel that uh, newer is better; that the older buildings were somehow inadequate. They were dark. They were gloomy. Um, they don't understand how uh, in in the West, certainly United States, and I believe in the UK. When people wanted to reuse old buildings, when they started to want to go back to the city centers in the 1960s and 70s, um, basically people said, hey, we need to find ways to bring electricity into this old building. We need to find ways to improve the plumbing. We need to find ways to improve the insulation. The the market demanded it, and industry responded, and this has not yet happened in Japan. People just assume, oh, the houses will be cold and drafty and, you know, whatever. Uh, it's really a lack of imagination and I think they've been sold kind of a false, um, you know, uh, uh, set of ideas by uh, industry uh, and, you know, advertising. So I, I think um, Japanese love their old buildings. They just don't think that they are appropriate for their life today. They have not seen what I have seen. Which are examples all over the country of people taking older buildings, renovating them, uh, up upgrading them, retrofitting them uh, to be, uh, you know, uh, more comfortable, to be, uh, you know, safer, more structurally secure for earthquakes, etc. Uh, they just this is a, a fantastic movement that has been happening, uh, you know, for decades here in Japan that is just not widely recognized by people through most of the society.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, I, but the, the last question I wanted to ask you was uh, you know so our theme this month is less is more mm-hmm. this was a culture a time that clearly uh, lived with much less than today in terms of uh, energy demand and resources and so on in what sense could it be argued that they have that they had more than we have today
0: Ah. Uh. Often, the kind of things that um, people, let's say, possess, it's a a bad word, but the kind of things that we enjoy, uh, we benefit from, that enhance our life, are the ones that go unremarked because they are so common and so pervasive and uh, form the underpinnings and the sort of connective tissue of our daily lives. And I think... Um, the Japanese people of this period possessed a remarkably sophisticated knowledge and understanding of their environment, of how to use things, of how to get things done in a very efficient and uh, beautiful way, Uh, which if they would stop and look and compare, if they had been able to compare to, uh, you know, European cities at the time, European farms at the time, they might have, have, you know, realized uh, how special what they had was but in fact they were living it from day to day it was emerging from from internal needs from you know basically um, you know what they wanted to do and and how they liked doing it I think they didn't notice what they had Um, this made them very vulnerable uh, to uh, you know images of uh, Western superiority uh, in the mid nineteenth century, when uh, you know the the American warships showed up with you know steam engines and you know they saw you know images and models of railroads and fantastic large buildings, um, they were vulnerable uh, to regarding Western culture, as particularly material culture, as somehow superior and more desirable. And this is when they started to sort of throw these things away and discard them in an attempt to um, match the West. Now, if I had been a leader in Japan at the time, I don't know that I would have done it differently. Uh, They managed to avoid being colonized. They managed to, um, you know, uh, integrate and adapt uh, the best of Western technology and for a long time managed to preserve a lot of the traditional ways as well. But ultimately, the shift in value, the shift in in energy sources, particularly the shift towards using coal, uh, fossil fuels as the prime energy source instead of these carefully husbanded, uh, you know, uh, forest supplies, was was really one of the main drivers of this uh, this shift away from traditional uh, practices. But I, I think uh, their lives probably were quite poetic. uh, Constantly reminded of um, what they considered beautiful, what they considered desirable. Uh, A lot of their knowledge was codified literally in poetry and in song. Uh, And uh, I think their life In terms of, you know, if you went into a a Japanese person's house, you know, if they were above the poverty line, of course there were some poor people uh, then as well, um, there was a visual harmony to everything they had. Uh, you know, in terms of color and texture and uh, material, uh, their life was uh, filled with gardens. The the, the cities, uh, not just in terms of, you know, um, uh, the samurai and their vegetable gardens, but the cities were full of, uh, you know, ex- very extensive tree canopies uh, throughout the entire city. So I think they benefited from uh, a very uh, comfortable and environmentally harmonious and visually harmonious lifestyle, uh, which they probably were not aware of, you know, except maybe artists who who would highlight these things for them. Uh, They were probably not aware of it. Um, At the same time, um, daily life uh, depended on a lot of physical effort. You know, they walked everywhere. They did not use, you know, uh, you know, draft animals much at all. You did not have lots of carriages and things. People walked. They pushed hand carts. Uh, they used boats in the cities a lot. But, um, you know, daily life, was. it was assumed that there was a lot of physical effort that would go into your life. They were not seeking leisure. And leisure seeking in itself was considered morally and ethically suspect and uh, it's a fascinating uh, set of value. If you know, if if you have two ways to do things, one is to invent a machine to do it, and one is to simply employ people who need work to do it, they would just employ the people to do the hand labor. So uh, it's a very, very different aspect. So if we think of comfortable life as meaning a life of leisure, well, they might not have had it so much, I- except in the term, in, in, in a sense of free time. Uh, but if you think of a comfortable life, as meaning when one where uh, you're well embedded in a very communicative and supportive uh, community of people, of like-minded people, of people who celebrate who they are, uh, where they came from, people who celebrate the gifts of their environment through their festivals and their their their, their shrines, uh, then it was an incredibly an incredibly uh, rich society by by any means.